0: It's amazing to see so many speakers, so many readers, so many storytellers, so we hope that you come almost on every time they have it. So we're honored to be part of it. Um, just a little bit about the Storybox project. It was started in 1995. At the time, I was serving as the first full-time high school storytelling teacher in the country. Uh, and I met a woman from Brazil, and she said, I wish there was a way we could trade our stories but there's too much distance between us. And so I went to my students, I ran a storytelling group called Voices of Illusion, and they said, well, why don't we send our stories to them? So I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about that later, Um, but this is one of the story boxes of the 50 that are in and around Columbus, and as far as Singapore, this particular one is at the Multicultural Center but I'd like to introduce someone that's going to talk about how they're using a story box in a different way than, and also she's going to share a story, so please give a wonderful hand for Ms. Talia Weiss.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kevin. Um, Hi, I'm Talia, and I'm... um You can't hear me?
0: Can you hear me now? Okay.
1: Okay, so um, I am organizing the, uh, with what I'm calling the Israel-Palestine Storybox Project. And my goal is to collect uh, personal narratives from um, Palestinians, Israelis, Jews, and Palestinian-Americans here in Columbus, um, and just their perspectives on the conflict and their connections to Israel-Palestine, and um, I'm doing that through the Storybox project. And um, my hope is to uh, bring those stories together and create um, a theater performance based on them. Um, so that's that's kind of a brief, brief summary of the project. And I was actually going to read a personal story, but. Um, Today, um, somebody gave me um, a letter that was written by um, an Israeli reserve soldier um, who had um, who had been in Gaza and he had stayed in the home of a Palestinian family. They were not in their home. Um, and he wrote this letter to them and left it in the house. Um, and I thought, I haven't actually read through the entire thing yet, but I thought I would just read a selection from that. Um, It's called, I Am the Soldier Who Slept in Your Home. Hello. While the world watches the ruins in Gaza, you return to your home which remains standing. However, I am sure that it is clear to you that someone was in your home while you were away. I am that someone. I spent long hours imagining how you would react when you walked into your home, how you would feel when you understood that IDF soldiers had slept on your mattresses and used your blankets to keep warm. I knew that it would make you angry and sad, and that you would feel this violation of the most intimate areas of your life by those defined as your enemies, with stinging humiliation. I am convinced that you hate me with unbridled hatred, and you do not have even the tiniest desire to hear what I have to say. At the same time, it is important for me to say the following in the hope that there is even the minutest chance that you will hear me. I spent many days in your home, You and your family's presence were felt in every corner. I saw your family portraits on the wall, and I thought of my family. I saw your wife's perfume bottles on the bureau, and I thought of my wife. I saw your children's toys and their English language school books. I saw your personal computer and how you set up the modem and wireless phone next to the screen, just as I do. I wanted you to know that despite the immense disorder you found in your house that was created during a search for explosives and tunnels, which were indeed found in other homes, we did our best to treat your possessions with respect. When I moved the computer table, I disconnected the cables and laid them down neatly on the floor, as I would do with my own computer. I even covered the computer from dust with a piece of cloth. I tried to fold the clothes that fell when we moved the closet, although not the same as you would have done, but at least in such a way that nothing would get lost. I know that the devastation, the bullet holes in your walls, and the destruction of those homes near you place my descriptions in a ridiculous light. Still, I need you to understand me, us, and hope that you will channel your anger and criticism to the right places. I decided to write you this letter specifically because I stayed in your home, I can surmise that you are intelligent and educated, and there are those in your household that are university students. Your children learn English, and you are connected to the internet. You are not ignorant. You know what is going on around you. Therefore, I am sure you know that Qassam rockets were launched from your neighborhood into Israeli towns and cities. How could you see these weekly launches and not think that one day we would say enough? Did you ever consider that it is perhaps wrong to launch rockets at innocent civilians trying to lead a normal life, much like you? How long did you think we would sit back without reacting? I can hear you saying, it's not me, it's Hamas. My intuition tells tells me you are not their most avid supporter. If you look closely at the sad reality in which your people live, and you do not try to deceive yourself or make excuses about occupation, you must certainly reach the conclusion that the Hamas is your real enemy. The reality is so simple, even a seven-year-old can understand. Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip, removing military bases and its citizens from Gush Qasif. Nonetheless, we continue to provide you with electricity, water, and goods. And this I know very well, very well, as during my reserve duty, I guarded the border crossings more than once, and witnessed hundreds of trucks full of goods entering a blockade-free Gaza every day. Despite all this, for reasons that cannot be understood and with a lack of any rational logic, Hamas launched missiles on Israeli towns. For three years, we clenched our teeth and restrained ourselves. In the end, we could not take it anymore and entered the Gaza Strip into your neighborhood in order to remove those who want to kill us. A reality that is painful but very easy to explain. As soon as you agree with me that Hamas is your enemy, and because of them your people are miserable, we will also understand that the change must come from within. I am acutely aware of the fact that what I say is easier to write than to do, but I do not see any other way. You who are connected to the world and concerned about your children's education must leave, together with your friends, a civil uprising against Hamas." I'll stop there. That was... um, Yeah, that's a real letter that was written by a soldier.
0: And if you would like to be involved in Talia's project and helping her find stories, um, she has a flyer in the back and she probably is holding one now, so she'll be happy. (laughs) Uh, But she can get some. So, you know, and if you know someone that it should go to, please take it and share stories. Stories are one of the ways that we connect it's about connecting. It's about making transformation. In our stories, we know each other. And uh, I'd like to introduce the next storyteller, who works in partnership with the Story Box, with the Multicultural Center, a great center that you can go and and uh, address many stories among many other things, uh, full of rich programming. And behind some of that is Christina Capolani. <laughs>
2: Five foot one and three quarters. All right, hi. Well, I'm Christina Capoletti, and I um, work with communications and marketing over at the Multicultural Center. And um, I'm not going to introduce this story other than to tell you the title and go right on into it. Um, can I? Am I heard pretty well in the back there? Okay, good. Um, This story is called A Peacenick, A Soldier, and Clifford. That's right, the big red dog. It all started when Leon walked up to the mic to share his story at the Storybox launch. A woman in the audience took in his G.I. Joe look, short hair, muscled body, and shook her head. She figured she wouldn't relate to anything this army dude had to say. She had grown up a gowny in a small college town at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. The Gownies were the kids of the professors. The townies were the kids of just about anyone else in the town. She had been taught that you go get an education to escape the life of a townie, early pregnancy for girls, and the military for boys who ran away from the girls that they impregnated. On top of that dire prediction, she was raised a flower child of peace activists' parents. She and her siblings were not allowed to use the word hate and were not allowed to even put their fingers in the shape of a gun for play. Her father's work as a physics professor kept him from the draft, and her mother worked for social justice causes. When she turned 12, her parents told her to start writing documents for her conscientious objector folder. That was probably the first big word she learned in her life. Wars in her childhood years meant trips to the State House or the campus to join in the protests, she learned to distrust anything that had to do with U.S. military activity against people in other lands. So when young G.I. Joe walked up to the mic, she felt her chest tighten against him. Then Leon shared his story, a childhood story about how he had learned an important lesson about love. Leon told how during school one day, An adult came to read to the class dressed as Clifford the Big Red Dog. To show off to his best friend, Leon told how he waited until he was up close to Clifford and then punched Clifford right in the nose. He told how he then ran off outside of the school to go hide to avoid getting in trouble. He motioned how he had to cram himself up inside a tractor tire on the playground and wait there for a long time crammed in that tire to avoid being found. He told how he later went home, thinking he had escaped trouble, only to find his mother waiting for him at the table. She already knew what he had done. To his surprise, he learned from her that Clifford had been his best friend's mother, dressed up in a Clifford costume to come read to the kids at school. He told how ashamed he felt and how, of course, he had to apologize to his best friend's mother, something that was very hard for him to do. The woman listening shook her head again. Serves him right, she thought. Her suspicion confirmed that this was a pre-military show of little boy violence to show off his strength. But Leon's story did not end there. He continued his story that several years later, as he graduated from high school, and prepared to go off into military service actually in the Middle East. His best friend's mother surprised him with a special gift. A little stuffed Clifford dog to take with him. She told him that when he felt like he needed to hit something to hit the little Clifford dog. In that moment of his story, the woman found herself moved to tears. She took a really good look at Leon then. The stereotype fell away and she saw a sweet young man generously sharing a heartfelt story. She felt compassion for him and an understanding of the kind of humble gratitude he felt for the kindness shown to him by his friend's mother. Politics disappeared and she felt a true connection to him as a person sharing a story of transformation. The woman waited until after the event to approach Leon. She began to explain her revelation, but it seemed too complicated to bother with at that point. So she simply looked directly into his eyes and said, thank you for your story. I really felt connected to you, and that was important to me. He looked a little quizzically at her and said, sure. I thought to myself later about the magic of storytelling, to heal, and weave people together. And certainly, isn't that about peace, after all.
0: Not five foot one. (laughs) Stories connect us, and stories begat stories. If you look on the, uh, the seats that you were sitting on, you might have sat on a colored piece of paper. If while we're presenting this story box presentation, you have a snapshot or a vignette of a story and you wanna write it down and place it in the story box or have a time today where you can share your story, we wanna encourage you. If you go home and say, oh my goodness, I really wanted to share my story in the story box, you still can do that by going to the Multicultural Center website or going to my website, which is kevincordy.com. I wanna tell you a little bit about the project and I wanna tell you two stories that come from the project and in addition to that i want to share a few stories of my own the very first thing is after that person in brazil said i really wish we could share our stories my students packed up the stories that they had at their school of their community and they flew it to brazil with a children's author and storyteller by the name of heather Forrest. by the time it got to brazil paula martin of argentina said I want that box. <laughs> and so the people of Brazil, Livia, had all the community put their stories in the box and then it was flown to Paula Martin in Argentina. By the time it got to Argentina, my friend Meg Gilman in Boston said, I work with Alzheimer's patients. We could use that box to help collect memories. And so we, the people of Argentina flew it all the way to Boston I thought this story box was going to travel to one place. But the need for stories kept it going. This story box has been traveling since 1995, off and on to the present day. This story box has spent time in in bars, in prison in Colorado. It has spent seven months in India where we had to send two people to get it back. This story box couldn't get through China's customs, I have no idea why. But people would get the box and they would celebrate the stories around the box. And so people would send me messages about what they did with the story box. Because an email is wonderful, but holding a story in your hand is a rich aesthetic experience. That's why we have people like yourselves who sit and listen to stories at the read-aloud. Because we crave stories. It's part of who we are. It's part of what makes us human. So I'm very excited to partner with the Multicultural Center that we have a free storytelling series where we're bringing international storytellers, and that's on the table where you can pick it up and either go to a workshop or hear professional storytellers next week. Onuumi. Jean Moss, who's an African-American storyteller and former Associate Dean of uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, and tells stories of authenticity and of the African-American culture. We have Dovey Thomason coming, who is Lakota Sioux, and uh, tells stories of First Nations, and and it goes on and on. I'm actually coming March 31st, and who knows what I'll be telling. (laughs) But stories connect us. And I want to tell you at one of the gatherings that we had someone just wrote quick vignettes and I want to share those with you. This person is Todd and he said when I was small my father used to play a joke on me. He'd give me a mirror and say look Todd there's a monkey in there. I'd always fall for it and he would get very angry. When I had a child of my own, I figured it was my time to have some fun myself. So one day, I showed my daughter a mirror and said, Look, there's a monkey in there. She replied, Oh, Daddy, that's just your imagination. (laughs) In a small vignette, it makes us smile. It makes us laugh. This one gave me pause. And this is by somebody. Emily. (laughs) Two years ago, I went to New Zealand for a study, a broad experience. It was the first time I had been on the Southern Hemisphere. So on my third night in New Zealand, I asked someone to show me the Southern Cross. His name was Dave, and he was a native Maori from New Zealand. He pointed into the sky and I saw a massive amount of stars arranged on a way that I didn't recognize. For the next three months, I looked at the, for the Southern Cross every night. I never forgot what Dave showed me and how to look for it. Sometimes so- stories serve as our greatest teachers. A story that I just um, said on our TV spot, someone named Wend said, I was going to the service. I was going to the service, and somehow I broke my leg. And I was laid up for three months, and I thought about how easy it is to be broken. How easy it is to hurt. And then I decided right then and there that I would work to be productive and not destructive. If we give people story spaces, they take them. They claim them. Sometimes they change them. Kathy Hunter from Walla Walla, Washington said, I'm going to take an old folk tale and change it so it talks about the story box. And so she travels all over the place. And it's World Black Awareness Month. And I want to share that story in that vein. In the central part of Africa, there was a man whose name was Kuwuku Anansi. And even though he was half man and half spider, he wanted to be known for something more. And so one day, he spun a great spider web. And he said, I want to be known for something, and he spun his web, and he spun his web. And then he heard a lot of people laughing. I mean, really laughing. And laughing. And he heard uh, people crying so that he could hear it. They were crying a little bit. Come on. (gasps) (gasps) Laughing, (laughs) crying, laughing, crying. He said, What is that? What is that? I want that. Something to make people laugh. Something to make people cry. I want that! And all the animals and the people who were talking at the same time said, Oh, well, that's stories. That's what we call a story. He said, I want that. He said, you can't have that. Naomi, the sky god, has that. He keeps it in a box, a red box, with all things on it. And he keeps all those stories, and they're locked up. And you can't have that. They're so small. He said, I'll have it. And he spun a great spider web. And he began to climb up that web. And he got up there. And even though he was the smallest creature, he looked over and he said, Naomi, who was as big as a cloud. He was as big as this room. And he looked over. He said,
3: Cuckoo, Anansi. What do you want?
0: Oh, I, uh I I, uh, I, 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 I. <laughs> I want stories. Anytime someone tells a story, I want the credit.
3: Goku <laughs> Anansi, In order for you to have the stories, you must do three things. You must bring me Mamboro, king of the hornets. I'm this small. I don't care. <laughs> You must bring me a Nani, the great python. You must bring me a Subo, the most ferocious leopard in all the African jungle.
0: He said, are you sure I can't do something? Can, can, can I phone a friend? He said, no, you must bring them. He said, all right, all right. And he went down, 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 down to earth. And he brought with him a calabash. And he carried it. And he scooped it up into the water. And he went up to the tree where the hornet's nest was. And he poured that water on the tree and he said, run, run, what's going on? What's going on, what's going on, what do I do? There's a flood. Run to the safety of this calabash. And he went into the calabash. And he took some dried grass and he trapped him. And he said, how will I get Anani, the great python? How will I get him? And he yelled out, Anani! and he heard it like an echo. Anani! <laughs> and
3: out of the grass. Anani. <sighs> Anansi. What s- seems to be the problem?
0: Uh, Anani, uh, I got a problem. Uh, you see, uh, uh, my wife says you're a... Uh, and he pulled out a bamboo pole. He said, You're dumber and shorter than this bamboo pole. Ah, I see the problem. Whatever will you do? Ah, um, uh, how would I measure you? Oh, All right. And he went side by side. He said, Well, we got a problem. You're shrinking on this side and you're not shrinking on the other side. How would I take this vine creeper and I tie it to your head so you don't move? Oh, okay. I didn't say it was smart. He said, Oh, well, you're still moving. How about I take it and tie it to your tail? Okay. And when he knew he didn't move, he took him. And he thought, How am I going to get the most ferocious leopard in all the African jungle? And he dug a pit. It's kind of fun. And he dug this large pit. And he hid behind a tree. Like my tree? And he hid behind this tree and he ran, and, and the leopard came and fell into the pit, and we all heard him cry out, ah, I could do this forever. Ah, come on, raise those voices. Ah, they're going, I just wanted to eat. Ah. And Anansi put his head over the pit. And Asubo said, mm. Anansi,
3: I've fallen and I can't get up. Some of you
0: get that joke. (laughs) He said, well, I can't help you, you'll you'll, you'll eat me. I will not eat you, I promise. I have your word, The leopard's word, is that any good? I know, (laughs) so he took it. He said, all right, I'll take this rubber tree plant and I'll move it all the way down and you put that vine creeper, very handy vine creeper, and tie it to your tail and I'll spring up and you'll be free. Okay. And so he took the rubber tree plant and he tied it up and he hit a tree instead. Another tree. <laughs> and he was completely unconscious. So he picked up a Subo. He picked up a Nani. He picked up whoever's next, Momboro. And he spun a great spider web and he went up and he saw Naomi, the great sky god. Ah, what do you have? And he presented them all. And he took out a large box that Christina's going to pick up a large box and she walked out and shared it with the world she shared this box and it was a box of stories but she held she found one person in this entire crowd that was going to be the keeper of the box she handed it to them she handed it to them that person stood up came all the way up here and the wind began to pick up as she was going down to earth the wind began to pick up but she couldn't hold on to the box. They went north It went all over the place, but she still tried to hold on to the wind. The wind, come on, the wind. And it was going back and forth and some stories were flying out and they went north and south and east and west. And that's why we have stories all over the world. But she was able to hold on to some And in this part of Africa, and in other parts of the world, they are still known as Anansi's stories. (laughs) Confession time. A true story. You may not talk to me afterwards, but let's see. Riding the school bus can be a blast. I was the shortest person in the entire high school. Wait a minute. I was the shortest person in the entire district. And I was riding that big, long, yellow bus. Who in their infinite wisdom had the idea to put high schoolers, middle schoolers, elementary on the same bus? And when you're the shortest person in the entire bus, in the entire district, they're going to pick on you. So I sat, you know, those leather canvassed seats. I sat there and I had enough gum in my hair. I had airplanes thrown at me. I tried to hide in my comic book, but it didn't work. Daily, I was picked on. Daily, I got angry and anger. And I remember one day I was at home and my my best friend's friend, who was much older, who served in the service, said, I just got back and I have a gift for every one of you. Handed everybody a gift, don't even ask me. I have five brothers and sisters. I don't remember any of them. I remember my brothers and sisters though. Handed me a little box and I opened it up. There was crushed like paper. And I pulled out a shelled out Hand grenade. And I looked at it, and I'd read GI Combat, and I'd read the comic books, and I thought it was the coolest thing. And so the next day I was going to take it to school, and I was going to show my teacher and ask to have a little time in class to tell about Ron's service. And I got on the bus. And I got on the bus, and I sat on the bus, and <laughs> there went an airplane. <laughs> Another one. Chewing gum. Words. We had a bus driver. Her name was Mean Jean. I don't think she changed it. It just was Mean Jean. It wasn't the day of discipline. Actually, it was the day of discipline. Her discipline was to take you by the head of the hair and throw you back up to the front seat. And Mean Jean was the bus you never wanted to get on. But it was the one that I was assigned to, so I couldn't get out of it. I'd had enough. I'd had enough of airplanes. I've had enough of all this. I stood up, all my little frame, and I went up and I took my little box, and I took my shelled out hand grenade, and I said, don't anybody move! Now everybody's going, oh my God. (laughs) And I held it up for all to see, and the bus stopped. And those high schoolers who were teasing in the back. You don't want to know what they were doing. They stopped. Faces changed. I said, I know how to use this. And I stood up. And it felt good. And then I looked at them. I said, I will use it. And I heard Mean Gene scream. But it was one of those high pierced screams like a mouse would do. And I took this shelled out hand grenade and I rolled it to the top of the bus. That's when I really looked at the people. I looked behind their eyes. I thought I was just like the comic book, but there was something about them that it was a real fear. And when I saw that, I said, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to do this. I I was just playing. I'm so sorry. Mean Gene. (laughs) (laughs) Grabbed me by the back of the head and slammed me in the front seat. We had 25 minutes before we got to the school. Said, Kevin, don't you talk? Don't you move? Don't you say a word? And I sat there, and I looked at everyone, and I said, I'm so sorry, and I meant it. And during that whole ride, I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, even though I was supposed to be the code of silence. It's all I could say. We got to the bus. She stopped. She pulled it over. She said, everybody out. I was going to do a quick dash. She said, Kevin, stay right where you are. And I looked at her, and I had tears in my eyes. I said, I'm sorry, I really am, Mean Jean. She looked over, she said, and I'll never forget it, she had a big hand and she put that finger in front of my face and she said, don't you ever, I I don't want to point, (laughs) do that again and she handed me my hand grenade. And I walked off the bus and I was scared. I tried to remember my locker number. I opened my locker and I shoved that hand grenade way in the back. During the entire day I kept walking out of class trying to to check on that hand grenade between the times. Didn't want anybody else to be hurt. And I shut it, and I locked it, and when I got it, I got on the bus. I I got on the bus, I said, I'm sorry, and I came home. And I hid that, and I didn't look at it or even think about it for a long time. That is until I was teaching high school. I taught high school for 14 years. I was teaching the day that Columbine happened. I remember the note that came in my mailbox the day after. I pulled out a little piece of paper. It said, these are the students who we think might be troublemakers. These are the students that we will watch. These are the students Please circle if you agree that they could cause potential harm to others. And I looked at that list and I tore it up into a thousand pieces of paper and I put it in a trash can and I didn't look at it and I didn't report to anyone because I remember the story of a very small boy who was on a bus. <laughs> and had a shelled out hand grenade. And what corrected them was being heard, don't ever do that again. Riding the bus can be a blast. One day, those words will mean something else. I want to share another story. It's a true story. I taught uh, taught storytelling. I don't know where that came from. I taught storytelling at Cal State University, Fresno. I taught an undergraduate and a graduate class every semester. I knew my students. My students would have shirts and ties. They'd look like they were just getting into that teacher door and going through that press, you know, and walking out like I look today. But there was one particular student, and he was in the far back. And Robert was sitting there, and I just gave an assignment, and I said, "I want you to, I want you to just tell a story." It was very simple. It was one of our first assignments, and we broke—just a little break in the class—and Robert Seidel, oh, sorry, it was Richard, sidled up to me. He said, "Mr. Courtney. and I looked at him and. He was much older than the students that I'd worked with. He looked at his hands, and they had calluses all over them. He had ruggedness in his eyes. You've met these people. And he said, "Um, um, um, I don't know. I don't know if I have a story. He said, "Um, how about I tell it to you, then you can tell me if I can tell it to others. I said, yeah, Fine. I'm listening. He said, I wasn't always someone who wanted to be a teacher. He said, I- it was a different time back then. You see, I, uh, I served in the military. I saw things that I never, ever want to see again. I saw things that I, I just want to forget more than anything. I was angry. I couldn't talk about it. I just... Didn't want to talk to anyone. And so, you know, I I came back home and and I I got a truck. I rented a truck. And I was just going to drive for overnight. Just for a little bit. But I went across the state line and it felt good to drive. It felt good to have the freedom of the road. It felt good to have to go nowhere and anywhere faster than anything. And I moved fast and quick and fast and quick and fast and quick. Soon, it was 14 days that I had that truck where I signed it out for one. I was in an old, old hotel. When a knock at the door, I was tired. I didn't want to answer. I don't want to talk to anyone. I opened the door and there were uniformed policemen. They asked me one question. They said, Is that your truck? I said, kind of. And they took me to jail. I'm not rich. I really couldn't afford a good attorney. I didn't know what to say. They told me just plead my case. Let them know that I was in the military. Let them know how I felt. And I told them, I got three years in jail three years my life was flashing before my eyes I was preparing for that first day how do you prepare for that first day to go to jail you can't I wasn't rich so I'm definitely gonna have bunk mates I had one I'm a pretty big guy back then I was a little muscular than I am now and I got in and there was a skinny grunt of a guy. You, you would notice him being skinny, but the first thing you would notice is long before it was vain, his tattoos. He had a tattoo of a star on his eye. He had its tattoo from his shoulder to his wrist, and it was of a snake. And it looked like it would bite you. He had a tattoo on his other arm, and it said, I love Mary, but it was crossed out. Then it said, I love Rachel, but it was crossed out. Then it said, I love Mother, and it was crossed out. had a tattoo on his gut. He had a pouch just a little bit, and it must have been some wonderful-looking person or a woman or some dancer, but it just looked like somebody with a lot of wrinkles. <laughs> now, He had a tattoo from his ankle to his hip, He had tattoos everywhere, so I didn't know what to say. What do you say to the first person that you see in closed walls where there's bars that keep you in and and don't let you go out? I looked at him. I said, nice tattoos. He said, "Ah, you like them. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) And he was an all right guy. We shared a lot of stories. I mean, you had to, it was just the two of us. We had a good time, as much as you could, in prison. And we shared a few stories, we, we talked a little bit. I mean, I could hear him snore, he could hear me snore, you know, I told him about the girl that I was seeing. I was hoping that she'd stay and wait, she'd only written a few letters. And one day he wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning, and said, <laughs> tomorrow's your day. <laughs> Oh yeah? <laughs> what is that? Tomorrow. Tomorrow's your day. Just
3: be ready. It'll be early.
0: Okay, now I, I was a little worried. He didn't tell me what tomorrow was, but he was constantly talking to other inmates. And he was saying, you got everything ready? Okay, we got to watch that the guards don't come. I'm a little worried. The next morning it was four in the morning. Today's your day. Get up. Well, you really didn't have no as an option in prison. And uh, I got up and uh, he said, roll up your arm. I wasn't going to question it. I wasn't going to tell him it was a sleeve. Roll up your arm. Hurry up. And I rolled up the sleeve on my arm. He
3: said, today's your day. Today's your day. Pick it. Pick what? Don't you know? Aren't you listening? Don't you hear the world? Today's the day you get your tattoo.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) what? (laughs) Somebody's coming in? How did you arrange that? No, I'm doing it. I'm the artist. I
3: made this one. I wouldn't tell you, that wasn't so good. (laughs) Roll up your
0: arm, what do you want? So I had to think, again, no wasn't an option. So I had to think and think and think. I said, all right, um, the girl I was seeing, she loved roses. Could I have a small, dainty little rose, maybe on my arm, rose tattoo?
3: Yeah, I think I can arrange that. Medic, you got the supplies.
0: It was his joke. He pulled out a crushed Kleenex. And there used to be a thing called a thermofax. Some of you might remember them. They're an old copier, but they'd pull out blue dye blue ink, and he had saved all the blue ink in this Kleenex.
3: It's not gonna be red. It's gonna be blue. I like blue.
0: And he pulled out a rusty razor blade. Roll up your arm. Are you squeamish? No, wasn't an option. He took that rusty razor blade and he etched and sketched all down my arm. And as the blood poured forth, that was red, (laughs) and made a puddle on the floor, he etched even more. Gotta
3: make sure it stays. And then he said, all right, done with that. What do you want on the banner?
0: No, it wasn't an option. So for another hour and a half, as I almost lost consciousness, he took that one lone rusty razor blade, Thermofax of blue. When he was done with the banner, he said,
3: "Ah, you talk about this girl, don't you? What's her name? I'll put it on uh,
0: your arm. I was so glad her name wasn't Catherine Elizabeth Ann Marie. And I looked at her. I looked at my cellmate, and I said, "Um, you know, she's only written a couple times. I I haven't heard much from her. Sure, I care about her. But I don't know if I care about her enough. I don't know if she'll be here. I don't know if she'll stay here. Could we just leave it blank? For now, could we just leave it blank?
3: Yeah, it makes sense to me, I don't like mom anymore. That's all right.
0: You know, I got out of prison in two years. Good behavior. And sure enough, She was there. She did wait for me and it took a lot of talking, a lot of healing, but we were talking about marriage and you know, of course she saw my arm and she finally mustered up the strength to say, so what's the story of the rose tattoo? And it all flashed back. Thermofax, unconscious, blue. So I began to tell her the story, I, I, I told her about the truck, I, I, I told her about the police, I told her about my testimony, I, I, I told her about prison, I told her about everything. And when she was done, she was really quiet and she held my hand and she said, so are you going to do it? I said, do what? Are you going to put your, my name on your arm? Are you going to do it? and she smiled and I had the question was no even an answer (laughs) and I looked at her and I I looked at her and I held her hand and I said Kate, very short name (laughs) I said Kate there are many things that I'm proud of I am proud of being at the Central Valley I am proud of working in the fields I am proud of changing my life. I am proud, trow- I love you, Kate. I want to spend the rest of my life with you, your heart to mine. I am proud of my choice of be a teacher. I'm proud that I'm going to take a step to help others make right decisions. But I'm not proud of what put me in jail I'm not proud of sitting there. I'm not proud of Thermofaxes. So Kate, can I ask you this please? Just once. Just once. Can we leave it blank? Can we leave it blank? About that time he looked at me and I said, is that true? Is that a true story? And He was not listening to me. He was too busy rolling up his arm. And when he was done rolling up his arm, I saw a not-so-small blue tattoo. And underneath that, there was a banner that remains blank to this very day. When he told me that story, I said, you know, it's a powerful, powerful story. I said, I would love to tell that story. And his immediate reaction was, no. (laughs) I said, and I remember it was no more than a split second. I said, I will tell that story to help others so that they can hear that story. Could I have your permission? And his immediate reaction was, yes. He went home, and he confided to me that he'd never written a story. And he took that story, and he spent most of the night, and he typed it up. And it was on one of those little typewriters. You could tell he didn't have a computer. And it was on that brown paper that you had in the 70s. And he had it in plastic, which I still have today. And I've been sharing that story in his honor. And hopefully we all can learn from listening to stories. At this time, what I'd like to do is some of you may have, while stories were being told, just have a small vignette, or a slice of life is what I call it, about a story that happened to you. Maybe you didn't have a rose tattoo, but maybe something resounded with you. Maybe it was a a bit of wisdom that your parents had said. Maybe it was a little story. Maybe somewhere these stories took you a different place. So I'm going to give a moment to leave it as an open mind and we'll fill some of that time and listen to your stories because the story box and the multicultural center is about having a space to listen. It's about walking in and saying maybe I'm not comfortable telling this story or maybe I am but I want a space to tell it. Whether it's in a box or told to a friend or told to someone who just says, I'm listening. We need to have those spaces, for that's where transformation comes from us. When we can let down our guard and say, wow, we share the same story, or we don't, or we have different stories that keep us together. Anyone out there have a little vignette that they would like to share? Just. whether you're taping or (laughs) it's up to you. Anybody? Come on, stories are what keep us together. It's the common, please, thank you. And if you don't mind saying your name, you can. If you do, then don't say it.
4: My name's Jill. And um, a couple of years ago, my husband, uh, was in the Air Force and was deployed to Iraq. And um, he's never sat down and told me anything that has ever happened to him while he was in Balad, and we're very, very close and share absolutely everything except this. And as I was listening to the stories today, I realized that the transformation that has occurred in him is when we watch or listen to other stories of other soldiers or airmen that were deployed um, to the same place he sits and cries still doesn't share anything but in that showing of emotion he's telling me what he's experienced and um, I have since been affected obviously and, and better understand not in words but in his expressing emotion having listened and witnessed to uh, other people's stories. So I appreciate the importance of not just writing and and telling the stories but listening because we are transformed by them.
0: As you noted, uh, he's telling so much more by by that strength. And sometimes we're not ready for stories. I've heard counselors, you know, as a professional storyteller, I've worked with a number of people, and people have come up and said, you know, my father was in the war, and it wasn't until this program, or it wasn't until we really sat down and had a story space that they opened up to talk. But on the same hand, we need to respect if that story doesn't, isn't ready to be told. And if it's never ready to be told, it's something that we make a choice from, or we're affected by, by our stories. I also talk to a number of people who say, my grandmother passed away. I wish there was a way that I could have collected her stories. And very kindly I say, did your grandmother know anyone? Go out there and meet the people that she knew. Call the uncle that nobody ever talked to and find out why. Because that person doesn't have bars with you look and find those stories. It is really important that if the person is no longer with us, that we find the people that they were with. And then that way, as the African proverb says, that a person is never lost when they're remembered. A person never dies when you tell stories about them. And so in a very little bit of time, in about an hour. I hope that you've been able to take a story journey. We may have time for one more story if you, you have that spark. But I commend the Read Aloud series. The Multicultural Center uh, has a series that, of storytellers as early as next week. And from my understanding, there'll be a podcast of this. So if you wanted someone to listen, you'll have that option. There are so many ways that we communicate stories. We need two things for a storytelling experience or an event to happen. Actually, we need three. We need storytellers, and they don't have to be professional tellers, and we need someone to listen. It is a connected art. It's what brings us together. Unlike theater, theater, you look out. In storytelling, you look in. You look at each other. And as you walk out, I want to challenge you to... Think about stories of your life or someone else's that you could put in one of the 50-story boxes around Columbus that will travel for one year and come back again. I want to thank Donna for giving us the invitation to come here. Uh, We're going to stay around so that if you would like to tell a story just to us, we're here for that reason too. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the day.